we have just started a new series called uh, From Egypt to the Promised Land. Uh, yes, uh, last week was our introduction to, um, to this series. And uh, today is our second installment on From Egypt to the Promised Land. Today we're going to talk specifically about uh, the words there of Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go. Um, we want to just uh, do a little review from last week, just sort of to kind of refocus us to, as to where we were last week. Uh, the children, sorry, the children can go on to Sunday school, please. Um, we have a map here that's going to just pop up in a second. And uh, just want to run through some of the things that we talked about last week and, and just to refresh our memories. We spoke about a geography, specifically. Uh, we talked about, uh, uh, okay, it's going to come up in a little while here. We talked about Egypt. We talked about uh, Mount Sinai or the wilderness. And we talked about the promised land. And we said those are real places, geographical locations. They're just there. Uh, you can look in the back of your Bible and you can see uh, maps that will show you that. And uh, we, we, we then spoke about the fact that uh, in Corinthians chapter uh, 10, verses 1 through 12, Paul speaks to us and uh, runs through a summary of the, wilderness, the Exodus wilderness experience of the Hebrews. And then when he uh, gets there to about verse 11, he says, These things happen to them as an example, and we and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, uh, all of what happens in that exodus and to do all the way to the promised land, not only was historical and real and had to do with the Hebrews, but he says it was written for us and we are to learn from it. And so we begin with the, the uh, geographical. And we said there is an Egypt. We said there is a Mount Sinai or a desert, and then there's the promised land up at the top. And we went then to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul speaks to us about three conditions, three spiritual conditions in man. He said to us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he talks about the natural man. The, uh, the NIV says, the man without the Spirit of God. And then uh, it talks to us in, in chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, about the carnal man. And this is the man that sort of lives in the flesh. And then he says to us in uh, chapter 2 there, verses 16, he talks about the spiritual man who can discern all things. We made an application. And we said that uh, Egypt, first of all, represents the world. The carnal man, excuse me, the natural man, the one without the Spirit of God. Uh, Mount Sinai in the wilderness, we said, that represents the carnal man. This is the individual who, though he is a Christian, though he has maybe come to faith in Christ, all he got was fire insurance. But just isn't walking properly with God, sort of being controlled by the flesh. And then there's the promised land, Canaan. 
And we made that equation to the spiritual man, the spiritual Christian who is victoriously living his Christian life. That's where we were last week and where we left it. And we left it with this question, where are you? If we follow that thought, and if we follow that format from Corinthians, and if we follow the parallelism out of the book of Exodus, then we have to be in one of these three geographical locations. One of these three spiritual geographical locations. You're either in Egypt, that is in the world, that is not the Spirit of God. Or you're in Mount Sinai. Yeah, you, you cross the Red Sea, but either you just got to the wilderness, which is great, or you've just sort of been doing the laps around Mount Sinai. And, and, and you're just living in the flesh. You haven't quite figured out what this whole uh, coming to know God thing is about. Or you're in the promised land, and you're going from victory to victory, you're claiming land, you're claiming territory, you're moving forward. And that's where we left ourselves last week. Let's have a word of prayer, and uh, sort of refocus as to where we are today. Father in heaven, may your spirit speak to our hearts. May your word penetrate, Lord, our inner man. Father, you are capable of reaching us. We know that. And so I pray that your spirit and your word would do such this morning. Lord, that we would be honest above all with ourselves and with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, so how do we get to where we are? We are now in Exodus chapter 3. We have Moses, uh, what was read to us, Moses is, is uh, talking to this burning bush, getting instructions with what he is to be doing. But how do we get there now? We had a series way back, back in the summer I think it was, on Joseph. Remember we had our series on Joseph? And by the time we were done... The Hebrews were now living in the land of Goshen. Uh, that's that land up here at the end of, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the Nile River, the, 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 the Delta. It's the plush land, the good land. And uh, Joseph has died. Actually, Joseph's been dead quite a while. By the time you get to Exodus chapter 3 and you've got Moses talking to the bush, about 400 years have gone by. And things have drastically changed for the Hebrews. A nation that had been welcomed and accepted had now become a nation that had uh, threatened the, he, the, the Egyptians by its mere existence in numbers. The Hebrews are large in numbers. They're threatening the stability of the Egyptians. So they are treated harshly to the point of slavery. Somewhere in the, in the time of those 400 years, the uh, Egyptian dynasty changes, uh, uh, warring tribes from the north, from about uh, the area of Persia have come in, and they have overthrown the existing dynasty. And the scripture simply describes it as a new pharaoh who did not know Joseph. It means he had no 
ties, no commitments, no, no treaties, no signings of anything with the Hebrews. And so they have become someone that uh, they were going to, to use in an... Uh, uh, actually, it's a labor discrimination, folks, at its best. And, and on top of that, based on race... And as a result of it, the Hebrews are oppressed. The Hebrews are oppressed. And that was the conversation there in, um, in Exodus chapter 3 with the, with the burning bush. God had began to fashion a man, to prepare a man, Moses, to be the deliverer and to fulfill the promises that he had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And the moment has come. Here is the man standing in front of this bush. And uh, at this point, he's just, a, he's just a shepherd. He's just a, a nomad living out there in the Sinai area. Uh, and the bush says to him, you got to go back to Egypt and you got to bring the people out. I have heard their cry. Now, that is uh, that, it's a tall order. Because this man's about to try to face a very powerful nation. But see, God had His hand in all of this. This is not any mere man. His name is Moses. He had been raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. And he had grown up inside those palaces. Archaeologists tell us that there's no reason to not believe that the Pharaoh that was present at the Exodus was the same, the same people that Moses grew up with. Side by side. You know what that means? It means he could look at Pharaoh in the face because he wasn't afraid. He knew that person. He knew him enough that he could step into his presence and not be afraid to speak to him. So God had prepared all these things. So at this burning bush, Moses gets his marching orders. That's the bottom line. He gets his marching orders. Proceed to Egypt and confront Moses. And then comes that, that uh, very well-known phrase that uh, serves as our title. Let my people go. Egypt. We have to go back to Egypt right now. Remember, we said that Egypt, in this metaphor, is the world. And those that are in the world are slaves. And they need a savior. Someone who is prepared and willing to fight on their behalf. To bring them out of slavery. Let my people go. Was the well known phrase that was spoken by Moses to Pharaoh. As he fought for the freedom of the Hebrews. The people under servanthood. Under slavery. I'm going to ask you if you would please follow me to the Gospel of John. Alright, uh, we are a Bible church and we take uh, that word Bible pretty literally. So, uh, do bring it always, we'll, we'll get you to use it. And uh, John chapter 8, actually today we are going to go through so much scripture, um, but uh, most of it I'll read to you. But this one I want you to read with me, I want you to sort of get into the... the the situation that was taking place there as Jesus was speaking to the crowd. He's talking to his favorite, most popular group in all of uh, 
in all of Israel, those Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, you know, they're, they're great buddies. And um, Jesus is speaking to them. Chapter 8, verse 31, this is what he says. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well-known verses. Verses that excite our heart, that make us feel the, the truthfulness of the gospel and what it has done inside of us. The truth shall make you free. But you know what? To the ear, to the ear of those Jews... At that moment, it just didn't sound right. Verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you shall become free? And at that point, really, we want to ask the question, did they not go to history class? Are they that forgetful? Can they be any more blind to their own history? I mean, just start at the Exodus or the Egyptian time. It's, there's holidays within their system that remind them of God bringing them out of slavery. We've never been slaves. And you want to say, really? You have bad memory. Did, did you forget the, the, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Parasites, and all those otherites that used to enslave you during the times of the judges and all the situations you lived? And, and may I remind you that uh, the, the, the ten tribes sort of disappeared because of slavery. And you guys had a 70 year holiday in Persia because you were slaves there. And, uh, and uh, how is it that you, sitting where you are, speaking with whom you are, probably at some point or another seeing a few Roman guards watching over this whole situation, paying taxes to Caesar, can say, we've never been slaves to anybody. How ignorant can you be? Remember the metaphor. It's always easy to blame someone else or see someone else's blind spot. But is Jesus talking about physical slavery? They understood it that way. To which they should have simply said, Yeah, I know, it's, a, it's been a rough going. Even though that's not what he was talking about. Verse 34, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. He wasn't talking about physical slavery. It was the spiritual, geographical slavery to which he was referring we are Abraham's descendants and have never, never yet been enslaved. And Jesus says, you are slaves now. 
So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. How can someone be so blind and not see his spiritual servanthood, his condition? But then, folks, Scripture says, the natural man does not perceive the things of the Spirit of God. The, the man without the Spirit of God just doesn't see himself as God sees him. They see their good things and their good qualities and how they help society or, or how they are good fathers, good husbands, uh, honest men. And, and that's all good and well. But they're still natural men, natural women who do not have the Spirit of God. And without the Spirit of God, we cannot hear the voice of God. We can't perceive the things of God. We are not children of God. We are living in Egypt. So let us just sort of head right into the first point for this morning. Servanthood. Let's just define servanthood here real quick. Actually, in regards to the, 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 the geographical place of Egypt, ten times in the Old Testament, it is called the house of bondage. House of bondage. You cannot be in Egypt and say, I'm not in bondage. Hey, but you know what? You're in good company if that's how you think. Because this group said to Jesus, we've never been slaves. And yet he was desperately trying to communicate, you need a deliverer. The definition of servanthood, this condition of servant, to exist at the mercy of one greater, one whom we serve. It is the surrendering under the will of another. In the New Testament, all the words that pertain to this come out of one root word. It's the word doulos. You've heard it. I'm sure you know what it is. It speaks of servanthood or slave. The concept of slavery is also used metaphorically. That is what Jesus did. It is used metaphorically to speak of spiritual, moral, and ethical condition. We are told because of Adam, we are by birth enslaved by sin. And it is by faith in Christ that we acquire the freedom for such, from such slavery to become servants of God. The whole concept of freedom. Uh, freedom isn't... The right to do whatever you want. That is not what freedom is to a Christian. It is the freedom to be able to become a servant of God. We stop serving the principalities of the world. To be free now to serve the living and true God. So, as you think through this metaphor, as we speak about Egypt, the wilderness, just remember a metaphor, they are comparisons that show how two things that are not alike in most ways are similar in one important way. Slavery was Egypt. 
So when you ask yourself, where am I? And if in your heart of hearts you conclude you're in Egypt, there is good news. There is a deliverer. Let's talk about servanthood. This is what scripture says, as we have read already in John 8. Truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So that means there is a master. Romans chapter 6 tells us the following. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Folks, if you are in the promised land, you still can't say, I've never been a slave. Because we've all come out of Egypt. If we've come out, we've come out of Egypt. So no one can say, Oh, I've never been a slave. I have lived in Europe all my life. No. Now metaphorically, we have all been slaves. And by the grace of God, some have met the Deliverer. Again, in the book of Romans 6, it says, For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. That means you had no idea what righteousness was. Because you were slaves. Because we were slaves. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Meaning, in Egypt, nothing but death but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life but he basically said was when you were slaves you had no idea what Righteousness was. But now that you're slaves to God, you know what righteousness is. See, in reality, we still are slaves. Servants of the Most High God. Titus, chapter 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts. And pleasures. Can we say we have never ever been enslaved? The answer is no. The natural man perceives not the things of the Spirit of God. Our second point if slavehood, servanthood exists, then may I introduce to you a God who is in the job. He is in the business of freeing slaves. Our second point is God frees slaves. He says in Ezekiel chapter 33, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil way. God has absolutely no pleasure in anyone who enters eternity in the state of slavehood. You don't want to die in Egypt. 
That's not where you want to die. You want to come out of Egypt. God is in the business of freeing slaves. Let me draw your memory back to the third chapter of Genesis. Adam and Eve have uh, made a very bad decision. They've eaten from the tree, from the fruit of the tree of, of good and evil. And, uh, and um, they uh, saw that they were naked, Scripture says. And then they ran and covered themselves with leaves. And, uh, and they hid from the voice of God. And of course, eventually, uh, they have to face up to what they did. And, and, and you know what happened. Curses were handed out. And uh, hope was handed out in chapter 3, verse 15. And, uh, but right before God tells Adam and Eve that they have to leave the garden, He does something. Because God is in the business of freeing slaves. He's not in the business of leaving people in their condition. He goes out of his way. So what did he do? He said, the, the leaf thing, that, that doesn't work. I, I need to help you with this. And so, Scripture says that the leaves were replaced with two skins. Two animals had to die. Because there was a principle set in eternity past that we as humans were yet to learn. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. And so, two innocent animals had to die in order that they would have skins to cover themselves. And restitution was made. Atonement was made. And Adam and Eve still had to leave the garden because there was still the consequence of their sin. But they were able to leave knowing that they could restore their fellowship with God and make offerings and make peace with God. Because God is in the business of freeing slaves. Let me read to you again from that... uh, chapter that was read to us in Exodus 6. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. He says, I will, I will, I will, because it is my character to offer salvation. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In Joshua 24:17, he says, "For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage." Now, you know, Egypt was a house, a job, Okay, the hours weren't very good and pay wasn't exactly the best. But, uh, you know, when they get into the desert, do you remember they complained? You know, you bring us out to this desert to die. Why didn't you just leave us in our homes in Egypt and eating our food in Egypt? It wasn't awfully that bad that they actually thought it was a good place to go back to. I got to play you that song. I'm telling you, I'm going to play that song. So you want to go back to Egypt? Where it's warm and secure. 
So Egypt couldn't have been that bad, but it was still a house of bondage. Oh, I was um, listening to a message this week. I've been listening to the speakers at um, um, coming out of uh, Founders Week uh, from Moody. And one fellow uh, was going through the passage of the rich young ruler. Remember, Jesus said to him, go and sell all. If your phones are off, that won't do that. Uh, and um, Jesus said in that passage, it is, uh, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Now, I've been thinking about that. How many of you here Consider yourselves rich. And I mean rich. What makes consistency? I mean, seriously? Come on. All right, uh, where's the deacons? Uh, get them one of those standing orders. <laughs> you know, do you realize that richness is based on um, your, your perception of it? Come with me to some of the countries I visited. Yeah, let's go to certain places. And you come back home and you go, I am rich. So when he said that it is easier for a camel to go through the iron, I thought, wow, you know, that metaphor, it depends, doesn't it? Sometimes I'm down there in, in Cuba and we're just barely trying to, you know, and I think, man, I could get this back home, and, you know, and I have that in, in my house back home, and, and you think, and my car, have you seen my car? It's like, oh, man, and we're, we're yeah, you've seen the cars down there. And it's like, yeah, do I have a right to complain? Egypt can be a very comfortable place. But spiritually, it'll keep you from God. You don't want to die in Egypt. What does the New Testament have to tell us in regards to God's love of freeing the slaves? Of God being in that business? Well, we read out of John chapter 8, verse 36. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Romans 8 tells us, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Galatians chapter 5 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. And in the book of Hebrews this is what it tells us, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that is, Jesus became a man, that through death he might redeem, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There is a pharaoh in Egypt that wishes to keep you a slave. 
Jesus said, it is the devil. He wishes to keep you there. And so he'll convince you of how good you are. How good you have it. How that really, do you really have to go through the, the water? Is it necessary? Why, why you do all the... When we get into our series, actually we start next week with this thought. There are, there are nine other plagues, there's ten in together, but do you know what those plagues are? Those are direct attacks to the gods of Egypt. Each one was an Egyptian god. Oh, there's a lot of religion in Egypt, folks. More religion than you can handle. Got all sorts of gods. Just pick a god. In Egypt, there's a pharaoh that says, No, I don't know the Lord. And I don't have to obey the Lord. Well, this brings us to our last point. If God is in the business of freeing slaves, then the third point is almost natural. He can hear the groaning. Can he? He can hear the groaning. That is, folks, good news. It is good news that he can hear the groaning. I have heard, he says in Exodus 3.5, and by the way, Martyr Stephen repeats it in Acts chapter 7. I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving. I have heard their groaning. He is not deaf to the groaning of those folk living in Egypt. Now right about now, I am sure that uh, the, rational, the rationale of some of us are thinking, wait, maybe all that you're talking about you know, all of this metaphor, Egypt, the world, slavery, and God always referring to them. Maybe you're exaggerating the idea that there is slavery. Spiritual slavery. Maybe all that you've read, since it all has to do with the Hebrews when they were in Egypt, maybe the application is only to them. There is no other secondary application to humanity. And because I know some of you out there are very intelligent, I come prepared. Now I'm going to ask you to follow me, please, to Psalm 102. Up to now I've been reading. I know you've been writing down furiously. And I know you got all those verses in your mind ready to go home and reread the ones that I've quoted. But this one I want us to read together. And it's Psalm 102. And we're going to read verses 19 and 20. In this psalm, this is what God says. The psalmist writes to us, 102, Psalm 102, verse 19. For he looked down from his holy height. From heaven, the Lord gazed upon the earth. The earth. And not just Egypt. He gazed upon the earth. What for? To hear the groaning of the prisoner. To set free those who were doomed 
to death. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said. And I have come to set the captive free. God hears the groaning. When you see yourself in a condition of servanthood, when you realize, yeah, you're in Egypt, yeah, you got the comforts, yeah, you got the gods, but you don't know the creator of heaven and earth. And you realize, I need a deliverer. The good news is, groan, my beloved. Just groan. And he'll hear you. And he'll come to your aid. Because he has already sent a deliverer. And his name is Jesus. And if you want to get out of Egypt, God will get involved. I want to close with a small illustration of my own life. I had, uh, in my days in Egypt, I had comfort. Mind you, might be different to the comfort of others, but it was good for me. I had a job, had a flat, had a car, had a girlfriend, and I was only 18 at that point. And um, uh, I had religion. Up to the age of 15, I was an altar boy. So I did the religion thing there for a while. So I knew the gods of Egypt. But life got complicated. When you're 18 years old, life sort of rotates around your family. So my mom kicked me out of the house when I was 17. So that sort of put me on a spin. And things kind of went wrong. and Wrong friends, wrong everything. And the girlfriend and I weren't getting along too good. And jobs weren't holding out the way I wanted them. Things were just not doing good. I remember on one December night, it was December, I knew that because the Christmas things were all in the stores and all that. And I remember one night, I started feeling really depressed. And I guess I couldn't sleep. I don't remember if I couldn't sleep, if I woke up in the middle, I don't remember. All I remember is this. I did something I had never done, or at least I have no recollection of ever doing before. And it's I got out of my bed, and I kneeled at the side of my bed. Now folks, I didn't go to Sunday school. I didn't even know what a Sunday school was. I think I heard about it in my neighborhood through the Protestant kids. But anything that had the word school and Sunday seemed like such an oxymoron that I said, I don't want to go there. So I never went to a Sunday school. I never been taught the Bible except the few years that I went to Catholic school. And they, they tried. The poor nuns, they gave it a shot. You know, they didn't get nowhere either. But, but you know, I had no concept of religion except what I'd grown up in. Just basically tradition. Why I knelt at the side of my bed, I guess I did it because I knew back at church, you used to have these pews with these cushions and you used to, you know, get on your knees. I got on the side of my bed and I just dug my face into the, into the mattress and all I said was, God, if you're real, come change my life. You can't get more selfish than that. Hey, but this is the best I could do. 
with a guy that I didn't believe in. I had stopped. I didn't even know if he was real anymore. And I knew he wasn't happy with me because what I had done and what I had said wasn't worth getting his attention. I said, if you're real and if you're out there, just come change my life. And I think I wanted to talk to him because I, I just kind of felt like do I, if there's a God I need to talk to. But before I even started talking, the person on the other side of the bed woke up and said, what are you doing out of bed? And I said, I lost something. Drop, I'm looking for something. So I got back in bed. All God ever heard from me that night was, if you're real, come change my life. That's not what you call the most theological prayer ever, you know. That didn't even follow the order of our Father who art in heaven thing. And I knew that one. I just groaned. And uh, the rest of December, January, February, what comes after that, March, April, they couldn't have gotten worse. Oh, man. It was, it was just downhill. And somewhere about April, I said, if this is your idea of changing my life, I take it back. Leave me alone, I'll figure it out on my own. On May 7th, He had mercy on me. And I came to know Christ. Did you know that I forgot about that prayer? I forgot about that groaning. I forgot about that challenge. Till a couple of days, a week or so after I'd become a Christian... I remember thinking, hey, you did change my life. So if you're in Egypt, and you say to me, I don't know what to say to God, may I just invite you to groan? I don't get to it too often with folk, but occasionally I get to people with just this really hard to, and I say to them, look, why don't you just challenge God? Now already you think, a minister telling me to challenge God? Yeah, challenge God. And say, if you're real, make yourself known. And let me tell you, He will. I'm convinced that He will. Because He's in the business of freeing people from slavery. Because He hears our groans. I beg you, beloved, don't in Egypt it's not a nice place you think it is and you think your God might just get you across that body of water but he won't he's going to leave you in the middle and you're going to drown along with all the other Egyptians so if you need to get out of Egypt and you don't know how just groan. And if you wish, you can groan right here, right now. Right here, right now. Just in your heart say, God, help. Get me out of Egypt. I want to know you. I want to know your son.